As the world of brand names and politicians offer their bandwagon platitudes for the summer of 2020, we've been thinking a lot about what that means for us, about what our role is. On the surface of it, conversations about wildlife, nature, conservation, climate change, mass extinction, and more, it doesn't feel like there's any connection with racism, LGBTQ issues, gender equality, rampant runaway nationalism, classism, wealth inequality. And yet, the two worlds of our cultural values and the physical space and beings which inhabit it are completely intertwined. They are intersectional. They are undetachable. That is why we have made the decision to rebrand our podcast. We feel like the name Eyes on Conservation no longer serves the purpose it once did. We don't feel like it addresses those issues enough. And instead of simply throwing a hashtag BLM stamp on our Instagram, patting ourselves on the back and calling it a day, we've decided to make social equality and natural conservation the natural allies that they are central to our journey forward. And we want you to take the journey with us. We want to hear from you about what you think about all this, what ideas you have about what's going on, but also for a new name, what concerns and questions you have. Please give us your feedback either through email at info at wildlensinc.org or by calling our voicemail at 208-917-3786. I promise that we will listen to and read everything you send us, and we would love to share your answers on an upcoming episode. And as always, the work we're doing is made possible because of people like our patrons on Patreon. Thank you so much for all you do. Please consider becoming a supporter for as little as a buck a show at patreon.com slash wildlenscollective. A forewarning before you listen to the show, there is uh, a couple clips that you might find disturbing or hard to listen to. There are some expletives throughout the show that um, is not part of our usual routine, but this was an honest, raw, authentic conversation that we wanted to have, and I feel like we had it. I'm really thrilled to share it with you and to start this journey with all of you as we continue the work that we're doing, but also to do it in a much more conscientious and directed way. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, a roundtable edition. Today we're doing something a little bit different. Typically we get around these roundtables and we discuss some current events, and we've only done a few of them really, but I'm joined here with three guests, Matthew Podolsky, Serena Simons, and Ben Alex Dupree. And uh, we're really trying to kind of come at this one at a, at a critical point where the Eyes on Conservation team has been having some conversations about what it means to possibly rebrand the podcast and to find a way to integrate the podcast in a way that really intersects with all of the different socio and political issues of our time that affect conservation and climate change and wildlife and natural areas. 
and the ways that that affects people of color, uh, LGBTQ community, and all of these different things, class, race, that we might not necessarily think of as being directly related to conservation. And we're hoping to kind of start a new path. I mean, I think we've already done a lot of that work in the past, but to really have a very conscientious perspective and direction as we go forward to be sure that we're solving all the different avenues that affect these issues and affect everybody involved. And that brings us to this roundtable today. So I'd like to just go around a little bit and have everybody introduce themselves, if that's okay. Ben, would you like to go ahead and start off? Tell us who you are, what you do, and any kind of links or current work you're on that you'd like to point people back to. Whatever you'd like to say, it's it's your your spot here. Oh, thank you very much. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Ben Alex Dupree. Uh, my social media handle is simply at Bendigenous. Bendigenous is um, kind of the way I've been slowly rebranding myself to just make it easier to, to follow me on different platforms. Uh, I'm, I'm an enrolled member of the Colville Confederated Tribes in Washington State, where I grew up. My father was Minikanju Lakota from Cheyenne River, uh, and so that's where my dad's family is from as well. Over the years, I've worked in commercial entertainment, youth media training, you know, frontline activism, you know, filmmaking, uh, primarily at Standing Rock. I also work with other organizations like IP3 to, to do media training for frontline activism and just to kind of go through steps and protocols and gear and just work on, I don't know if you can hear that, my dog's barking in the background, but, uh, you know, just working on different ways to keep people safe out there as we continue to, you know, work towards a, a better world uh, through our activism and, and uh, you know, Water protectors is a term that was, you know, kind of coined during the Standing Rock movement. I, I prefer to think of myself as a land defender, water protector, uh, you know, and, and, you know, walking in the path of indigeneity, because I, I think it's uh, very important for us as filmmakers and artists to be in that space. A message from the native filmmakers fighting the Dakota pipeline at Standing Rock. Speech by John Trudell, We Are Power. Video short produced by Ben Alex Dupree and Heather Ray. We as the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere have been resisting this violence and this oppression for 500 years. We know that the black people have been resisting it for at least that long. And we know that the white people have had to endure it thousands of years. And now it's come full swing to this generation that we live in. We cannot allow this to continue to go on because it's a matter of dollars and their illusionary concepts of power. We have to reestablish our identity. We have to understand who we are and where we fit in the natural order of the world. Because our oppressor deals in illusions. They tell I'm also a Concordia Studio artist and residence alumni, where I worked with Davis Guggenheim and Roddy Taylor, formerly of Sundance Institute. Sweetheart Dancers, directed and produced by Ben Alex Dupree. My mom would always say, you're not dancing against dancers. You're dancing against the drum. When you come to a powwow, you're not just representing your last name and your family, but you're also representing that community in which you come from. You're dancing for grandma or grandpa who drove eight hours just to watch you dance. You know, we, there's always room to grow as artists. So I wanted to continue my education and, and learn how to tell better stories. It was very awesome for me to be a part of that uh, fellowship. Currently, I'm working on a film for American Masters uh, about a Pawnee artist named Bunky Echo Hawk. 
who's also blending traditionalism and modernity, you know, to tell stories about how we live today as indigenous artists and people. That's excellent. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we're lucky enough to have uh, Ben also as a member of the Wildlands Collective. So uh, thanks so much for Ben for being here and, and sharing a little bit about your thoughts on. on awesome. Some of the I felt like it, it was a good monologue. I could have went longer. <laughs> well, we, you know, we can always edit some of that stuff out. So, you know, whatever you want to do. Yeah. Thank you. That was great. It was really great. Uh, next, we have Serena Simons, who also another Wildlands Collective member. But more than that, a voice and name that you should recognize as avid listeners of the Eyes on Conservation podcast, uh, somebody who's been producing shows for EOC for a long time, but is involved in many more projects than that, which is probably why you haven't heard her as of late. But Serena, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, even if it feels redundant for an audience that knows you pretty well? Hey, <laughs> thanks for the intro. That was really awesome. And it's so good to see all of you guys. I haven't seen Ben since Sundance, I think, uh, 2019 or eight. What was that? Was that a year ago or longer? I don't know. <laughs> it was 2019. Yeah. 2019. Feels, feels like a lot longer though. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was on mute, so I couldn't answer. Um, yeah, no, it was a little while ago. It was 20 yeah. pounds ago for me. <laughs> <laughs> Up or down? Up. Up. <laughs> so, yeah, we're we're all we're all coping. We're all figuring it out. Um, yeah. So my name's Serena Simons. Um, I uh, currently work in wildlife management for the state, uh, particularly in large carnivore wildlife management. Um, so yeah, as Greg was saying, I have been super busy. This is my field season at the moment, and I live in Lake Tahoe in a pretty rural, pretty affluent, pretty white area. So, you know, I've been trying to think about that and, and, you know, being a person of color in this space that I live in and, and just trying to find space for myself and for other folks that live out here and just, just processing a lot of stuff right now. But I'm a, a filmmaker and I am a biologist and I've been trying to marry the two, you know, since I've, you know, basically started my career and what it means to be, you know, marginalized in a minority. And I feel like connecting all of those things is, is what I enjoy doing, finding those stories and telling those stories. You, you know, it, it's really hard. It's, it's been, it's been hard to find space and find people that are willing to listen um, to a lot of these issues going on right now. I feel so tired if I'm honest, but so this is great. I'm glad that we're having this conversation right now um, and really just diving deep into a lot of these issues that I think are just having such a huge effect on everybody right now, myself included. So I'm a female filmmaker who is interested in telling stories about wildlife and marginalized communities and a couple current projects I'm working on. One is about the Amamutsen tribal band in Santa Cruz and how the state is bringing, helping the tribe bring fire back onto landscape for all kinds of traditional practices. For a little bit of background on this, please listen to Burning a Forest to Revive a People, an interview with Valentin Lopez with PBS, explaining the significance of fire practices for the Amamutsen tribal band. After many, many generations, 800, 900, perhaps a thousand generations, 
of passing on this traditional knowledge of how to manage or steward the, the lands and how to use fire, that tradition was broken. That was broken when our people were taken to the mission, uh, to, to the missions here in California. It was broken during the period that followed the missions when our people were put to work at, at these large uh, uh, land grants and stuff like that, many times as slave labor. That land has, hasn't been stewarded properly by by people in a really long time and so you know trying to bring fire back to landscape and what that would mean for um, the community and um, just having a sense of place again is really awesome so I'm excited about that one. COVID has kind of put a little bit of a you know a hiccup in that with traveling and being able to talk to people and be around um, elders and things like that but you know pushing forward with that and I think that'll be a really cool project. I also have a documentary that I'm working on right now about the Guniella in Panama and jaguar conservation research in the cloud forest. A Change in the Clouds, directed and produced by Serena Simons. The tropical rainforest is losing ground. When we lose the forest, any damage that is caused to this forest will cause the disappearance of many species. The cloud forests of Panama. These forests are some of the most biologically diverse in the world sheltering nearly 1,300 endemic species that only exist here. This lush landscape not only gathers exceptional biodiversity, but also high concentrations of threatened species, including a very elusive creature of the night, the jaguar. If you Google change in the clouds film, you'll find it, or you can find me at serenasimons.com. You can find more info there. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we'll be sure to put any of those links in the show notes description and on the website, uh, wildlensinc.org. And that way you're able to follow up on any of the information you're seeing here. And Change of the Clouds is a just a really fantastic uh, short, really just spot on. Um, Matthew Podolsky, co-founder of the Wildlands Collective. Matt, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself, even if that may also feel a little bit redundant. And then I'll just edit everything you say from here on. Uh, awesome. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a wildlife biologist, sort of turned filmmaker, uh, now doing a lot of stuff uh, in the podcasting space as well. You know, I, I think like the, the the thing I feel like is, I don't know, maybe worthwhile or important to share at this moment is, you know, the project that the project that brought me to Sundance, which is, you know, where we mentioned earlier, where Serena and, and Ben and I hung out in uh, January of 2019, was this film called Sea of Shadows, which is, you know, about this illegal wildlife trade and you know, the near extinction of the world's uh, smallest species of cetacean, the vaquita. Sea of Shadows, co-director Matthew Podolsky. Mexico narco-traffickers call Totoaba the cocaine of the sea. The fishing of the Totoaba by Chinese traffickers and Mexican cartels is killing the vaquita. The vaquita is getting extinct. There were 100 and then there were 60. And now there's fewer than 30. Come on, sweetie. Come on, mama. To stop the killing of the vaquita, we have to take down those traffickers. The whole thing stinks. It is corruption all the way. 
who is El Chapo of the Totoaba? And, you know, I mean, this, this is a project that, like, you know, brought a lot of attention and notoriety to our organization, the Wildlands Collective. Um, and it's by far the biggest project that I've been involved with as far as like budget and uh, attention and all that stuff. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, you know, in, in this moment that we're in right now, where, you know, we're, we're thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement, we're thinking about indigenous rights, and I mean, these are things that we've been talking about, I mean, here on Eyes on Conservation and, 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 and as a part of the Wildlands Collective for a long time. But we were, you know, like working on this film project down in Mexico, you know, we were the white film crew coming in, like we were the white saviors, you know what I mean? Like, oh, we can come in, like we're the best people to come in and tell this story, right? It was a really important story to tell and I'm proud of, the work that we did to tell it and to get it out into the world. But were we the right people to be telling that story and to be making those decisions about how that story is told? No, certainly not. And so like, as you, you know, you, you asked to talk a little bit about projects that we're working on now. One of the projects that, uh, I mean, the project that I'm spending like most of my sort of creative energy on right now is this new podcast series called Common Land which is a radio documentary style series. The concept is that each season we want to tell the creation story behind a different protected area. We were able to produce our first season focused on this national conservation area near where I live in Boise, Idaho, called the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. Common Land, created and produced by Matthew Podolsky. The only place in the entire world that the boundaries were scientifically designed is right here at this bird's prey area. But what does it mean to protect a piece of land? Entire southern Idaho is still an unsaddled issue. Indians still hold land title to that. The United States expected Indian peoples to die out and Indian nations to disappear. Is this protection really enough to preserve the places we love in this era of climate change? More cheatgrass equals more fire, more fire equals more cheatgrass. And it just spirals and spirals with each fire gets worse, kills more native plants. I, I really do feel like we are looking at a permanent loss of ecosystems unless we start dealing with this pretty seriously. You know, we've been thinking about like what this next season of the show, like what protected area we want to focus on. And, you know, we're, we're sort of in the, the pre-production stages of this second season and, and the protected area that we've sort of decided to focus on is Yosemite National Park. And part of the reason that we chose Yosemite is because Yosemite being one of the first national parks in the United States, it tells us the history of that place tells us a lot about how interconnected the history of protected land in America is with the reservation system, right? and how these protected areas, these areas that we think of as quote unquote wilderness, right? And we're using that term wilderness, we're defining it as, you know, lands uninhabited by humans, right? What we're missing in that history is that all of these protected areas had to be cleared of human inhabitants in order to be quote unquote protected. And so we really want to tell the story of like, we want to shift the conception of what protected land in America means by like showing that true history. Um, but we also want 
the storytelling itself, the, the folks who are doing the storytelling and controlling the narrative to be like representative of the people that live in those areas, right? Um, and obviously we're, you know, in pre-production on this project during COVID-19. So like, I'm not planning on traveling to Yosemite to do, to do this, right? And so what we've been doing is we've been team building, right? We've been building a team of producers and, um, you know, audio technicians to work on this project from the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation. So we're working to establish a collaboration with the Southern Sierra Miwok Nation and we're building you know, this, uh, uh, we're trying to build a diverse team, you know, who, of producers, you know, who we can engage with and who have sort of equal say in the final product that, that we, in, in, in crafting that story. So, I mean, that's, I, I don't know, that's just like a little bit about sort of like, I guess, I don't know, the process I'm going through, like in my creative work and trying to like create more equitable systems, like in this, in this industry, right? In this kind of field of like conservation focused storytelling. Excellent. Thank you so much, Matt. For listeners who haven't had a chance to check that out, Common Land is fantastic. Season one is really something you need to get caught up on. Very high production value. Great listen. I don't often give uh, any kind of introduction on myself, but maybe that might be helpful too for a little bit of background. Uh, I've been podcasting for a little over six years, and that started as the manifestation of the podcast Majority Villain. And that was a show that I developed around talking about de-democratization in politics and work and home and society and also the corruption, legalized corruption, really, in most cases, in in a lot of our political spheres. So I, I kind of fell into Eyes on Conservation and Wildlands a little bit by accident. My real passion was about policy around climate change and the ways that we're more or less ignoring that, and the ways that it affects uh, people of color and and different indigenous communities, coastlines. So having the conversation about coming back to how do we be very conscientiously, explicitly clear about a direction of trying to move the podcast in in discussing that entire sphere of, of issues and overlapping concerns and policy and the way it affects people is is very exciting. And I don't think it was something that we were aware that we weren't doing, but I think the fact that we want to put a big stamp on making sure that this is not a passing moment, we're not just jumping on a, uh, a 2020 bandwagon and that we're able to really continue to build something that's very purposefully driven in that direction is is just great news. So... Uh, we hope that you join us for for this long path. I I think one part of how I'd maybe like to start this discussion is talking about, uh, for lack of a better term, environmental racism. And I think that for most of our listeners, there's a there's probably I, I would imagine I'm you know assuming the best of our listeners that you're already pretty aware of a connection of of how environmental policy affects different people of races and different people of color and and different uh, uh, lower income neighborhoods. But I think to a larger audience, to a lay audience, that connection is very weak. And so the idea of how, why why is the conservation show talking about race? Why, why, Why would that ever cross your mind to have something that you would do that? They're completely different topics. They're mutually exclusive. They have nothing to do with each other. 
in terms of how it might be helpful if if that's kind of something that you're as a listener you're coming to for the first time it's it's the way that we talk about you know extract societies resource capitalism industry and the way that it pollutes areas of uh, especially people of color especially in the southern hemisphere but also in in areas in the united states such as coal powered plants and the odds of of people of color being uh, closer in proximity to these and, and more uh, statistically affected by them. Food deserts, healthy food accessible in given areas here in the United States. Um, that's that's an issue. And it, again, affects people of color in, in a, a vastly unequitable way. Uh, access to clean drinking water. Uh, when we think of Flint, Michigan, or Newark, New Jersey, Flint being 57% black, Newark, New Jersey being uh, nearly 50% black, And COVID-19, disproportionate health effects on people of color, uh, a zoonotic disease, which is exacerbated by climate change and conservation issues. So having the conversation about conservation and not talking about racial issues is not only undermining the, the value and importance of race issues, but is is undermining conservation itself. And so if you're not aware or, or, or thinking about it like that, that's something that has to change. And um, I'd like to shift this conversation onto, onto the group. I'd probably just leave it open like that because I'd like to see where this goes organically. But I'd like to start by just saying as, as a, a, a straight white male, this kind of conversation scares the shit out of me. And it's one of those things that it's super uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I talked to Matt about it a, a little bit and... He said, you should just start by saying you're nervous. And I said, okay, that's what I'll do then. Um, I I am. I'm nervous about it. And I think that that kind of pushback and the kind of uh, radical unacceptance that we see around Black Lives Matter and and, and just a sheer indifference around the way indigenous communities are are treated and affected by by, um, conservation issues or health issues for that matter, policy issues. That kind of pushback is about the fear of having this conversation and about having it ongoing and about being comfortable looking like an asshole. And I think sometimes you just have to do that. And that's how you grow. That's how we change. That's how we move forward together. So um, enough talking from me. I'd like to just put that out there and see where we can take this conversation. Thanks, Greg. One thing that came to mind is um, a sign that I saw at the Women's March several years ago, and it was, if your feminism isn't intersectional, I don't want it. And I sort of feel that way about environmentalism. If your environmentalism isn't intersectional, I don't want it. I I really, really, and I think as a collective, we're really pushing the envelope and really trying to put intersectional environmentalism at the forefront of our conversations, at least in in the episodes that I try to produce, I almost, I mean, it's almost always that kind of conversation. And, and yeah, like you said, Greg, it's, it's super uncomfortable. It's, it's not comfortable if you haven't engaged with these kinds of conversations on a daily basis, if you haven't been exposed to microaggressions and macroaggressions and racial inequality and all kinds of stuff like that, if you're not confronted with that on a daily basis, it's really hard and it's really uncomfortable because it's like, well, why do we want to talk about this all the time? And POCs are like, we don't necessarily want to talk about this, but we're forced to talk about this all the time, every day, in every single facet of our lives. So I think that's kind of 
a really cool thing that I'm noticing among my non-POC friends who are sort of understanding the like the the collective weight of racism and how that affects people's lives on on crazy crazy small scales in every way and everything that you mentioned you know food deserts and inequitable access to water and outdoors and I'll, I'll just kind of wind this down. One thing that I have noticed since COVID has started is this insane amount of localism in, in Tahoe. And I talked to some friends of mine who work with this organization called Brown Girl Surf. And so folks who don't live in, you know, outdoor, beautiful outdoor spaces like Pacifica or Tahoe or whatever, and you you're a minority who's seeking those spaces during COVID. They saw signs like if you've driven more than 15 uh, or driven more than five miles, turn around. Uh, And, you know, like you live in the Bay and you're POC and you're just trying to go surf and, you know, because local spaces and outdoor spaces belong to all of us. Right. But those places are there by design. Like, like Tahoe where I live, it's the way it is by design. It's, it's, not diverse and it's not for low-income people by design and so like the localism that's happened with covid like if you don't live here get out i I have been really really trying to engage with that and talk to people about that reason which is predominantly minorities right you don't have access to these outdoor spaces that are going to help you with your mental health your physical health whatever and and that's that's not fair it's not cool and like what are we going to do about that so that's just something like on a local scale that I've been thinking about is how do we get more people that don't look like the typical people that live in these areas access to these spaces. And I just think that'd be super beneficial, but that's another form of, I think, environmental racism is, um, you know, excluding people that don't look like you, you know, and COVID as a a nice excuse to tie that up um, with a nice bow on it. Sure. Sure. Have you have you come across any pretty ingenious ideas or concepts around creating that kind of diversity in those spaces? Um, I mean, at least for where I live, like housing is a big issue. Affordable housing is a huge issue up here. The average home up here is over a million dollars and um, people have second, third, fourth homes up here and they, you know, live in Silicon Valley or the Bay or whatever, um, and they come out here once or twice a year. But then folks like me who are long-term renters, you know, people that live up here don't make that much money. Um, there's no housing available for us because those homes are just sitting there or they're Airbnbs, you know, and so lower income folks, there's nowhere for us to be. Uh, there's no affordable housing for us. So, I mean, that's like the biggest one up here is it just completely excludes a whole group of people just by financial means, you know, and just like not having space. And then there's the culture too, you know, shifting the culture and trying to get people to understand that people that are non-white that live up here belong here too. Um, And that, I think that's a bigger, harder shift that's going to have to happen. Ben, would you like to say some thoughts on some of this or whatever you're thinking right now? Hell no. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, the, the, you know, there's a million thoughts I think we all have when we start to try to wrap our mind around not only the current administration, but this this deconstruction of the last, at least the last hundred years of of our ancestors, you know, our grandparents, you know, 
Trump likes to call it cancel culture. But in reality, what we're doing is we're paying the bill for a lot of bad decisions that were made. A lot of a lot of this creativity that constructed America as an iconic country of of, of great patriotism came from a lot of just off the off the cuff decisions about what we're going to do. Let's let's move all the Indians over here to this area. Oh no, let's move them over here because there's there's gold there. Let's let's change this. Let's let's make a park and kick all the Indians out of there so that we can conserve that. And so over time, you start to look at these decisions. Well, let's build a nuclear waste plant next to a river that hosts all the salmon, the last, you know, uh, the big salmon streams that populate the ocean. Let's, uh, you start to look at it and it's really difficult to not get a sense of this kind of like, a, it's time to pay the bill. It's, it's cataclysmic, you know, and that's kind of what it feels like to be in the throes of uh, this current environmentalism that they like to call and, uh, and and it's an absurd that it's, you know, billed as a left wing concept because, you know, it's not to the left, right? It's just kind of like the reality that our children are going to suffer much more than we are overall. And, and th- the fact that we're talking to you as indigenous people and you're white people, you know, we can go to that history 500 years ago and we can talk about slavery. We can talk about all the issues that our ancestors collectively have made over time. But, um, you know, as a native person, if I focus on that too much myself personally, I think I get off track in what the real goal is. And the goal is, listen, the damage is done. How are we going to fix this? How are we going to right the wrongs? How are we going to bring people to the side of of conservation and and, uh, successfully allow this deconstruction of the colonial mindset that continues to pummel us and just take from us and destroy and, and poison water. I mean, Flint still doesn't have decent water. Mm-hmm. You know, the government coughs up trillions of dollars when we're in a COVID crisis, but still doesn't know how to provide safe drinking water to people who aren't affluent. You know, and to piggyback off the concept of the unaffordability of a place like Tahoe, you know, I, I, my name, my Indian name is Tukosast. I'm, I'm a direct descendant of the chief of the Entiat tribes in the Wenatchee tribes up in. Uh, on the on the eastern side of the Cascade Mountain Range, my um, uh, sorry if you can hear my kids yelling around in the back. Um, That's great. But the lakes there, Lake Chelan, the land from which I am from, and my grandparents have been stewards of for hundreds of years, and we can track our ancestry back, you know, several several generations of Standing Cloud, Chief Standing Cloud. Uh, I, I could never afford to even rent there. Right. I mean, these the homes are owned by pro football players and and rich guys. And, um, you know, it's a very Hollywood atmosphere. And I couldn't even live in the same community that my ancestors have lived and fished for thousands of years. So it is definitely an issue for all of us within a certain like income level. And now in America, it affects everyone equally. And that's where we come together as people, you know, as all the different races in America, we do have to kind of do some housekeeping and understanding how to get along in a, in a way that um, still addresses all of our concerns, the Black Lives Matter movement and stop killing black people. I mean, honestly, stop killing people in general. And, um, you know, let's 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 get these police officers to carry their own insurance and have them go through psychiatric evaluations so that maybe 
they are a risk to their own money, their own pension, their own, their own, you know, let's find solutions to things, right? Um, just giving them immunity from every single action that they pull can really pull back on a lot of these things. So there's solutions to everything. Maybe that's a tangent to get back on focus about like where we sit as a collective and how we're moving forward. You know, we, we do have to deconstruct and understand how these parks were built as uh, Matt was saying. And we also have to understand what it's going to take to get people excited about protecting these places and, and what does it take? You know, how do we get these new social justice warriors? How do we get these new, these new biologists and scientists to, to come in and, and have us um, work in real time? Uh, you know, as it was said earlier, I, as a native person, I, I have many ideas and many thoughts about futurism, about, you know, the current state of America and of the past. And um, just to consistently be, you know, playing the Indian card and having to talk about the history of these places is exhausting for me. It's not taught in schools. The education is where, where it fell off. This, even this construct of American education and getting to 12th grade. So you, you done good. Now you can move on and, and have a good life. It's, it's all constructed in a way that uh, fits the administration's value system throughout time to champion corporate America, champion, uh, you know, this, this sense of, of take and pull and, and steal and own. Uh, and and that, is, that is the economic reality of, of what we're facing. You know, we, we can love the land all we want, but what are the strategic measures that we can take to get more people on our team to actually fix these problems? Because um, otherwise it's just an education lesson and, and PBS has been playing that story for years. I mean, Ben, I, I'm I'm curious. Like, for me, from the perspective of a white person who grew up, you know, in this very biased educational system, right, and and had very warped perceptions of of our country's history, right, and the land itself, you know, for me, like Standing Rock was like a crucial turning point because it was this opportunity for white people to help indigenous people like on their terms to protect land, you know? So I, I you know, I don't know. I mean, like, like it, it, it felt like a turning point for me, but like, I'm curious about your perspective, especially as somebody who was like heavily involved in that movement. Um, and then I'm also curious about like what, like this recent court case, I, I'm just curious to get like your thoughts or reaction to that. Like if you're, if you're hopeful about that decision and what's going on. Yeah, I mean, the, thank you for the comments about Standing Rock. You know, Standing Rock was an explosive moment in history for, uh, for America. Just for a second, I'd like to take a step back and remind you of how things were going at Standing Rock in 2016 as Native Americans came together in one of the largest gatherings of Native American tribes in over 100 years. A significant development when at that time, the pipeline that had actually been scheduled to go north of Bismarck, upstream from the largely white populated city, was redirected south of the city, straight through the northeast corner of Sovereign Sioux Territory. Here's a clip from Democracy Now! of what was going on at Standing Rock back in 2016. Just a quick warning, this audio can be hard to listen to. 
these people are just threatening all of us with these dogs. And she, that woman over there, she was charging them and it bit somebody right in the face and then it charged at me and tried to bite me and she's still, they're still threatening these dogs against us and we're not doing anything. Why are you letting their, her dog go after the protesters? It's covered in blood. Flash forward to July of this year. A U.S. District Court on Monday ruled the Dakota Access Pipeline must shut down within 30 days. In a big win for the Native American tribes who argued the line's route put their water supplies at risk. The U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia said the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers violated the National Environmental Policy Act when it allowed Energy Transfer, the company behind the pipeline, to construct and operate a segment of the line. Unfortunately, that wasn't going to last too long. As the U.S. Appeals Court said, the Energy Transfer would be allowed to continue pumping oil as long as the court battle was continuing, which means that 570,000 barrels per day are continuing to be pumped through that pipeline at the risk of all those downstream. Indigenous people and the gathering of the Sheti Shakoi, the, all the people of the plains coming together for one united cause, and that was to prevent Dakota Access Pipeline from crossing the Missouri River, the Minnesota, um, and for the reason of, for the fact that pipelines are very, very uh, inefficient ways of, and, and very like structurally unsound, um, and so you know, that became a flashpoint in American history because what would happen and will still happen if that breaks is the poisoning of that water, that water system that flows south and affects millions and millions of people, you know, could be 20 million plus people, um, you know, that people still don't understand where their water comes from. Like a lot of water systems, especially around St. Louis and and in that region are drawn from the Missouri River and treated. But some of the particles that are released when oil touches it, like uh, the benzene and whatnot, are too, they don't get screened out. So you're literally ingesting chemicals that are going to give you cancer. So that was why that battle was so universal. It's, 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 it's becoming a part of a common theme about protecting the water with Flint, Michigan, with the Columbia River in Washington State, you know, the snake, the, we can go down the list of all these water tributaries and the solution is always, well, you know, if we just, it'll, it'll thin itself out, whatever you put in there, it'll just kind of get clean on its own because it's water. And you're like, but at some point you reach a capacity and then you're just, it's just filled with that toxicity. And we go, well, everyone gets cancer. No, they didn't always just get cancer. That's because you're drinking this bad water. So that was kind of like what we thought was very black and white. And we thought that that was the important part of Standing Rock. The other thing to note that goes back to an earlier comment about, you know, this, this kind of inequity in, in, with people of color. Uh, well, the, the city of Bismarck had rejected plans to make the Dakota Access Pipeline cross the river above their town because they knew that, that that was actually a really bad idea to have it going through. So they were able to find the exact tip and point where the reservation starts to make their mark to close to to go under the river so if that isn't a direct aggressive action towards people of color by positioning a highly unstable toxic you know pipe through indian land 
which was protected by our treaties anyways. That was treaty Indian land that was taken by the Corps of Engineers and flooded and then taken back after uh, they decided that that was their land. Uh, so, so court cases abound and, and history that goes back, you know, 100 years and broken promises. And now, now the white people, primarily white people of Bismarck deciding, hey, put that a little bit lower so that uh, it doesn't come through our backyard. Uh, this, these are the examples of the decisions that are made in the boardrooms and, and in communities that are, you know, microaggressive, you know, racism, but it's so general that you don't have to say that it's racism. You can just say, well, you know, it, it's not about race. It's just about what we need for our communities to be safer. Now you have the situation with the Dakota Access Pipeline, uh, having a judge decide that they want to review this further. They want to have an environmental impact statement done properly. And it's gone back and forth in the courts. And the recent, the recent decision here a few days ago is that they're going to continue to allow oil to go through the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, so as it goes through the court system, you get this flip-flop of, um, hey, let's stop the oil. We want all the oil out of there till we can do this proper statement. And, um, and now you have a situation where they've reversed that in the higher court. I think Native people are optimistic about this, this court decision or the series of decisions because it still means there's something, there's, an, there's a possibility that we can get this thing shut down. I think um, as we move more into the future, it just becomes financially harder and harder for these corporations to continue what they're doing. KXL is losing money every day that they're not laying that pipe in the ground. Uh, Dakota Access is, is having really a hard time recouping the money that it lost during the time that Standing Rock was occupied. And um, I'm, I think we're very encouraged overall by the participation of, of all the different races and cultures that came together and still continue to stand for these movements. Again, it's a turning point for all of our children. It's not safe to say that our generation still is on the front lines of fighting this, but it's the generation below us and below them that are only, it's only going to get worse for them. And, and I don't want to be standing on the wrong side of history, eating a McDonald's cheeseburger, you know, driving my big truck and, and being annoying in a way that uh, my grandkids look back and go, he didn't love me enough to stand up for what was right in the time that he had. Uh, and so I think that this becomes a matter of honor for indigenous people to continue to fight that fight and, and work in cooperation with organizations like Wildlands and anyone who's willing to, you know, put in the work to make sure that we attain some of these, these goals that we're talking about here today. I guess, I guess then that kind of tra transitions into the question of, okay, great. We're having this conversation about how do we rebrand or uh, rebranding sounds so corporate um how do we how do we really like uh be very conscientious about the language that we use and the direction that we go as both a collective but also as a podcast in a way that's meaningful it, it reinforces allyship instead of reifying bad broken uh, racial tropes what does allyship and cooperation look like moving forward how especially in the mindset uh, and the perspective through the lens of a conservation minded minded group i mean I, I i can jump in here like just for a minute i mean this is something i've been thinking about a lot as a as a a, a white male right you know i i came across this article and i i, I don't have the um the title or the author on the tip of my tongue but um 
you know, there's there's been a lot of articles shared around, right? Like geared towards white people, like how can you be a how can you become a better ally, right? Right. Um, and a lot of that a lot of that shit is clickbait, right? But like, there's some also some like really good articles that that I've come across uh, over the course of the last couple of months, um, and one that stood out to me right, was an article about this concept of allyship, right? And like what it means to be a good white ally. And the author, you know, basically was arguing against the whole concept of like white allyship. And the argument that she made is that it's it like this shouldn't be a badge of honor that we like seek out as white people. It's just an obligation. It's, it's, it's something that we need to see as our duty. I don't know. I guess I guess there's not necessarily anything wrong with like that that term in and of itself, but I think like I I, I prefer to think of it as our obligation and our duty as like the people that are society and this whole like our whole society is built on white supremacy, right? And everything that we're talking about is like structural, like housing, right, and income inequality, like that's a conservation issue, right? It's like, you know, both like Serena, both you and Ben, like both put that in like really uh, good context. And like, I don't know how anybody could like hear that and like not recognize that all of these issues are, in, are intertwined, right? And just like the, the the very nature of the society that we live in, you know, creates these conditions that are both racist and also are, you know, degrading our habitat and like, reducing our potential to have um, a healthy, equitable future on this planet, right? It's our duty, you know? It's not a badge of honor. It's just something that we have to do. You know, we don't have a choice, right? (laughs) Because like our fellow people are just, are you know, like people aren't being treated fairly and our future is currently fucked, you know? Like, I don't know. That's, I'm devolving into a tangent here, but... Well, I always love the opportunity to hear Matt drop an F-bomb. So <laughs> I, I guess, too, there's also like I, I should point out that I realize the irony in asking people of color like, hey, how where are we supposed to do about this? Where are we supposed to go when the prescriptions have been laid out time and time and time again? Affordable housing. You just said that, Serena. Uh, not redirecting a pipeline because of a largely white community says that you should do it just to run it through the northern point of a, a, a sovereign nation. Um, those those are already prescriptions. So like asking time and time again, like more or less the same questions, I can only imagine, but I, a little bit, I can imagine why it must be so exhausting to have these kinds of conversations over and over and over again. I guess, I guess the question in terms of like reframing that maybe a little bit in some way that's a little bit more useful is like, okay, we see what those prescriptions are. Uh, we hear a little bit about that. Um, you know, we've heard it a lot, I guess, and, and, and we understand what needs to happen. But it's like that. How? How do you do that? Well, I mean, like, so, I mean, part of the reason, Greg, part of the reason that I jumped in when you asked that question is because of what you just said. Right. And like Serena and Ben, both of you have like talked about this exhaustion associated with this moment. It's like there's this dichotomy. It's like we're seeing good, positive things happen as a result of this movement that we're in. But at the same time, we're putting too much burden on people of color to provide solutions when we are, white society is the source of those problems, right? Which is why I 
like wanted to jump in and like provide some answer to that question. But like, I also think, I mean, here, here's the other thing that I'll say, like, I also don't, I don't know, like, I, you know, like Serena and Ben, like, you know, I don't want this conversation to be one-sided. Like, you know, I'm curious if like you guys have questions for Greg and myself, you know what I mean? Like about, about all of this stuff, you know, I mean, I, 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 I guess I kind of want to like flip the narrative a little bit and, Thank and you. I, yeah. I don't want this to just be like the white guys asking questions to the people of color on this call. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. This is an interactive date. We need to ask more <laughs> questions. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I don't want to over explain things either though. So I'll defer here and, and take a step back. Um, well, I'll, I'll start with this, like personally, what I've learned throughout all of this is that as an activist, you have certain roles, right? Like if your role is protesting, if your role is graphic design and making like kick-ass posters, if your role is a filmmaker, like you're an organizer, you're like just everyone, it, it's okay to have your role and it's okay to not fill all those roles too. And so I have found with my role and the fact that I have a white mom, you know, like I have a lot of patience for people in my circle that I love and care about and want to impart what I know and, and just sort of like hold, not hold their hand, but just sort of like be understanding and be empathetic. So I try to lead that way with like other interactions, right? Is like, I try to have empathy for other people. I try to see where other people are coming from. And, you know, I think like real allyship is that like, you are just a person that has empathy and you're trying to put that empathy to good use. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot is white people doing that work and doing that work for each other like talking to each other and uplifting each other and validating each other so that Ben and I and other POCs don't have to validate not, you know, we don't have to do that work. Like we have laid the groundwork. We've made the blueprints. Like we, you know, we've given you the ingredients, like you were saying, Greg. So now because we've been screaming for years, hundreds of years about oppression, inequality, systematic racism, whatever, and nothing's really changed and been happening, I think this is a moment for white people to really, really in investigate that and process that, what it means to be white. Like you were saying, like not just like what it means to be POC and like digging into that, but like you guys really understanding what it means to be white and like in internal, like, yeah, just shifting the focus and, and, and not just making it about other people but making it about, okay, we are part of this conversation. What, like, what are the issues and how do we, how do we fix that? I think that's kind of this moment right now is what I'm feeling. And because that exhaustion is super real. <laughs> I don't know if Ben also feels that way, but I have been feeling that way for months and months and months, especially because of where I live, you know, and, and just not, like feeling like I have to censor myself with people and kind of like do that dance, like even in the workplace too, um, because we are such targets. Um, it, I, I don't know, it just becomes really hard and really exhausting. And I, I've tried to have a lot of conversations with my white friends and white family members and things like that. But I think if that mirror can be 
flipped and sort of white people investigating that and processing that. Cause I think that's happening for the first time on a, a level that's productive. I think people, you know, people that are, you know, social justice focused or whatever, who understand that there are these systems in place, you know, and I have wanted to think about that and engage with that on a certain level, you know, that's always been going on. But I think for, you know, for Greg and for Matt and folks who I know care about me and care about these issues, like, I think there is some like molecular shit happening for you guys for the first time. And I think that's amazing. And I mean, I don't, I don't have the answers for you guys because I've been processing this shit for my entire life. But, you know, I think the fact that you guys are having these thoughts and, and thinking about it and just like, I, I think that's all awesome. And I think that's new. I think white privilege to me and the way that I recognize it in my own life is kind of like being in a dark room and you adjust to the light that's available to you. And then the idea of going outside on a sunny day, it's just like too much. Like it's a dangerous amount of of energy that's coming at you. And so you go kind of back into the safe room or you acclimate again to to that room and i think there are large swaths of predominantly white males that have become so acclimated to that that there's such a a slim understanding of okay you say these statistics you say these facts we can talk about the history but like it doesn't have uh you you've been living in that in that bubble of of privilege for so long that it doesn't it doesn't register with you how it even sits in the real world. Um, I, I think that, especially on on the left side of politics, there's a there's a tendency to kind of ignore that very complicated, mostly ignorant part of of that white privilege culture. I don't know if that makes sense. That made so much more sense in my head before I started talking, but. No, I mean, like you're, you're, I mean, I, it, it does make sense. I think it, it makes sense to me, Greg, for sure. And I'm going through something similar, you know, and I mean, I think everybody's like processing that differently. It's personal. I don't know. Like for me, I've been thinking a lot, like, I mean, I, I had, I was, I was privileged enough to have a conversation to, you know, an, an interview a recorded conversation with, um, with the chairman of the, Shoshone and Paiute tribes of the Duck Valley Reservation um, as a part of this Common Land podcast series that um, that I shared a little bit about earlier. And uh, his name's Ted Howard. He, he said something that really stuck with me. And it's, and it's not like anything revelatory. It's like an obvious statement. But just like the way that it was phrased, it, it, like it's stuck in my mind. And what he said was, you know, something along the lines of, you know, talking about, you know, the arrival of large groups of, you know, white European American settlers um, into southwestern Idaho in the 1860s. You know, he said something along the lines of, you know, for those white settlers, their arrival here was a new beginning. But for the people that already live there, for the western Shoshone and northern Paiute people, it was the end of a way of life that stretched back thousands and thousands of years. And like that, that struck me because there are these stories that we all tell about our families, right? And like the story for my family is like the story, it's, it's an immigrant story, right? It's a story about how, you know, the, the Russian Jewish people were being exterminated by 
the czarist Russian government. And, you know, my great grandparents, you know, escaped the pogroms in the 1890s. And, you know, they made their way to the U.S. like as teenagers, you know, they were refugees. But then they came to this country and the, the arrival in this country, it's like by the time they got here, our governmental system was already like one of white supremacy. You know, it's like they were being mistreated and then they came to this place and like were largely welcomed because their skin color was the right color. You know, they weren't being oppressed anymore. And you're totally right, Greg, like they were living in a dark closet. You know, they didn't see that there were people being oppressed all around them. Right. And, and so like, I don't know, I, I, bet, I, I mean, and, and I, you know, I am a, a, a recent arrival to, to, to the West. You know, I've been living in Idaho for only 10 years and I grew up in the Northeast. But like I've been thinking a lot about like, like what it means for me to live here like on land that is like Western Shoshone and Northern Paiute land, like they don't have a ratified treaty. So like there was never a legal transfer of land title to any European American. Like this, I live on land that is owned by the Western Shoshone and Northern Paiute people. How do I, like, how do we come to terms with that? Like, I don't know, I'm still struggling with that, but I think we need like a collective, like large scale societal, like conversation about what that means. And we need a new we need a new form of like citizenship. Those are just some thoughts I have. I just thought I'd let that awkward silence sit there and simmer for a little bit. I was feeling it. I yeah. liked it. It was it was um very <laughs> contemplative. It's <was> Paul. <laughs> you know, you know. I think I think um the unifying conversation we're having here is that we all come from different backgrounds, but we're all focusing in on filmmaking as the tool. And I can remember a, a, a good friend of mine, like a big brother, uh, director Chris Ayer of the film Smoke Signals in 1998. I said, what is the ultimate goal of making indigenous film? And uh, he, he actually quoted uh, Ron Howard. And he said, um, I was speaking to Ron Howard and he said, simply entertain aggressively entertain aggressively because that is what america understands and so where we sit as biologists as creatives filmmakers activists our job is to kind of work within the framework that's been designed by american pop culture to start to bring people to our side of thinking and it's very political i mean we'd like to say we're separating art from politics as i i'm quoting now my friend bunky echohawk but the truth is is we cannot make strides forward in this situation if we don't find ways to to relate. I, um, one example I think of is a few years ago, while Standing Rock was still very hot, the film came out, uh, The Devil We Know. And it was a documentary about how DuPont was poisoning the water and making people sick on the East Coast. Uh, I, I was surprised to see that there it was mostly about white people uh, or Christian people. It, there was no indigenous influence on that film. And I knew a few people had been upset and said, how could they not mention Flint? How could they not mention Standing Rock? And I said, you know, in this day and age of media spin, we have to tip our hat to every type of perspective that might shed light or change people's perceptions of what's happening. Uh, and, and using the word happening, I think of, um, you know, Jamie Redford's documentary called Happenings. 
and uh, he's just traveling around talking to different people who are have their eye on you know alternative energy and how that works and and it's not particularly political it doesn't really dive deep into the tragedy of american indigenous relationships it you know there is room for all perspectives to continue to spell the story out letter by letter for each community now our group as kind of a collective would be how do we find a way that we're all at peace with each other while we're trying to reshape american pop cultural narratives how do we entertain aggressively so that that kid who might go on to be uh, a famous youtube video game guy or whatever he's on twitch maybe he just decides that as a famous twitch video gamer he's also going to you know do his best to save the national parks and uh, we can get into splitting hairs about how land is land of the people for thousands of years I also believe that that as much as that's true and we appreciate the acknowledgement uh, for my people, uh, we, we, I would not be here if it wasn't for how America shaped itself in the beginning. Like my, my great grandparents were, well, my great grandfather was, uh, was Jewish, you know, he was a Freelander traveling with his brother to go to Seattle to seek a fortune and met a, a young Indian woman who was, was rowdy and mean and exciting to him and he ended up staying and and that's how my mom's side of the family began to connect its roots to uh you know multiculturalism in america my last name is dupree which comes from my father's uh great-grandfather who was a, a french canadian trapper who during the time when ever, the, they were killing the buffalo he saved a herd for himself he and his wife and they raised that herd and and later on he sold that herd to a farmer or a rancher who now that is actually the last genetic herd of buffalo in yellowstone and that came from wow. a french canadian trapper my great great grandfather um, fred dupree so this is all written in the history books it's in nat geo it's in you can read about it um, pretty much anywhere so i think that we also can't and, and this is just me getting a little bit older and and i was young and radical and it was all the white man's fault that I had that moment, I had that time as I read through Von Deloria's books, you know, God is Red or, you know, all, all of these, Custer died for your sins. I was very radical in my, when I was 16 and up, you know, Rage Against the Machine and, you know, let's just, let's stomp on everything. And then as I grew into my older age, I was able to learn and read and discover more about my, my history and understand that, you know, there, there's something much deeper and more complex about being a leader. It's very difficult because you're having to look at all the different situations, analyze how we can stop things in their own respective communities with community leadership. How do we tell a story about Indian people who didn't grow up the way I grew up? Like, so there's so many layers. And as storytellers, I think that's what we're honing in on here with this collective. We're saying it's time to entertain aggressively, bring our team together, get more people on board with this story and, and, and find a new way to shape America in, in, it may be it may be propaganda. I mean, it just may have to have elements of propaganda. We may have to play off of people's, uh, you know, internal idea of what that means to be an American, because I don't think that's going away. You're never going to be able to pry the American flag out of people's hands and tell them that they're not from where they are from. But meanwhile, they're, po they're poisoning the drinking water, they're destroying the land, the air is getting worse. So what is the middle ground? Like if <laughs> I always tell people who say that they're, you know, they're GOP or they support Trump or I always say, listen, I don't even care anymore. 
what I care about is you better flip your script on what you think is best for your own family. Like that's all you need to focus on. Don't worry about all this other stuff. And so for us coming together like this, I think that the larger game plan is how do we entertain the people and get them running in our same tracks? I guess one thing I will say, uh, you know, just in this moment, it's it's been really hard for me. And I know it's been hard for a lot of people for a variety of different reasons. And I've been clinging on to, you know, moments of like beauty and uniqueness and, and, and just like what it means to be human right now. And, you know, like my across the street neighbor is eight and she, you know, went and picked me some wildflowers on her hike and, and gave them to me. And like, that was so beautiful. And it like made my day. And it was this little moment of just like remembering that we're, we're all just trying our best. Right. And like, we're just trying to get through day to day and like kids are awesome. And there's, there's just, there's those moments of beauty that still exist and, um, among all the chaos and the craziness that's happening right now. Um, but I just, I want people to remember that, you know, I, I forget who was saying it, Greg or Matt, but you know, the way that we're sort of trying to reframe the podcast is going to be, you know, we're doing this for the long game. Like we're going to do this and, and thinking far into the future. Like this is not just, um, a short burst of energy that we're putting towards this, um, to, to just try and cover our asses right now. And we're, we're, we're in this for the long haul. Right. Um, uh, there was a sign, there's like one road around where I live. Right. And so the, I saw a sign and it was just black lives matter on cardboard and it was right outside by the street. So everyone passing by would see it. And I was just so shocked that some, some white rich person dared to put that sign out. But every time I'd pass that sign, I'd be like, wow, like somebody actually cares about me. Somebody actually cares about this movement. Like I don't feel as alone. Right. And I'm thinking about, okay, like I, I want to acknowledge them. Like I, maybe I'll go write them like a little letter and just pin it to the sign, or maybe I'll go up and walk up to their house and, and just introduce myself and just say, thank you. And then as I was thinking about that and almost ready to do that, they took the sign away, like almost like, okay, we're done. Like we did our thing and that's it. And, you know, it, it could be gone for a number of reasons, right? But like, I don't have that moment of looking and being like, wow, somebody, somebody understands what I'm going through and like is being a good ally and has empathy for me in this moment. But I, I just like, it's, it's not enough to just do that one little thing. We all have to really just remember that this is, it has been affecting so many people's lives for so long you know, like Ben was saying, like, he's like, oh, I'm, and I'm sitting in my, my wise old age now, and I'm not as radical, but like, we still need those radical kids, right? Like, we still need people like fuck shit up and, and, and yell and scream because, but we also need, you know, the Ben's who are like, yeah, it might, you know, like, just have that history and have that knowledge, right? Like, we need that balance of, of activism. So I just, I just want to really impart with people, like, it's, we can't give up right now. I know it's really hard, but we really have to think about, like Ben was saying, generations below us, generations down the road, and, you know, in terms of en environmental justice and just all, all of that good stuff that we always talk about. Yeah. <laughs> as we're, as we're kind of giving our closing remarks here, can you, can you just share with us maybe 
What's the one thing you're feeling optimistic about or hopeful about? Where do you see hope today? I mean, I, I guess you mentioned that a little bit, but is there like a specific policy or a specific uh, part of the movement that, that resonates with you? Um, I mean, to be honest, I, you know, I, I still have like, you know, I'm not like a nihilist. I still think things are going to get better for people eventually down the road. But, um, you know, I don't, I, I'm still grieving. Like I'm still sitting with everything that's happening and I'm not really looking for that silver lining right now. I'm not looking for like hope and progress. Like I, I'm just kind of still sad. I'm still sad. I'm still sitting with that. I'm still grieving. So, um, you know, I'd like to say that there are things that are making me feel like better every day and progress is being made, but I just, I'm just honestly not feeling that at the moment. I just, I'm feeling like, um, shit's still fucked up and, um, I'm, I'm processing that still. No, that I, I appreciate that. That is an honest, raw answer and there's a tendency i know i have it but there's a tendency to just say like it's okay like um, we're all moving in the right direction and to not make time to allow people to have uh, feelings of, of, of grieving and and to make space for how other people process and how i mean in general optimistic optimism and hope are really you know kind of fortune telling and are hallmarks of well hallmark yeah no thanks for thanks for your honesty there Ben or Matt? Oh, I'll take my round just so we can move on to Matt so he can have his, his closing comments here. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, the, thank you for, for that. You know, I'd uh, definitely like to clarify just a little on my own. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a love child of, uh, you know, a Native man and Native woman at the height of the American Indian movement when my father was, he had three kids and was married to a white lady. And so I'm literally born out of the American Indian movement's revolution and the media effects that it had when Sachin Littlefeather rejected the Oscar for Marlon Brando in the 70s. Uh, I spent five months living in a tent at Standing Rock and every day, you know, I was subjected to the same brutality we all were, you know, with which started with the local cops all the way up to the National Guard, the Border Patrol, uh, at one point, there was a surface-to-air missile being photographed on the drill pad, uh, flyovers by drones, um, you know, constantly, you know, being shot and sprayed with with mace and tear gas and all in the middle of giant fields that weren't being documented by anybody but us. So, you know, as far as like, I, I'm radical as fuck. But the thing is, is I understand what it's like to be on the front lines against militarized police. I understand what it takes to kind of be in these places and stay safe. I also understand that the men, our mental health is primarily the thing that we need to focus on. And um, so I had to take a step back for a few years and just kind of find a new groove because it does tax your soul. And I know exactly where you're feeling. I know what you're feeling. Like it is hard to feel like the world cares about us because you're so faced with the opposition at hand. Um, one thing that really, you know, kind of cheered me up during that time is, you know, I was cold. I didn't have a jacket. I didn't have a lot of money. So there was a tent where they had donations and I went and found this nice little jacket and put it on. And I was like, well, this is going to work for me. And as I opened the side pocket, there was a letter written by the person who donated it. And the letter said, you know, we, we believe in you. 
continue to do what you're doing. Um, this was my husband's jacket. He passed away of cancer. I don't ever want to have anyone else have to deal with this in their lifetime. And um, so I think that sometimes we're just, social media gives us this impression that everything that we're facing is just evil. But the reality is there's millions of people who believe what we believe. They're just not strong enough to stand up and say what we have to say. So hopefully by being the artists that we are and, and, and helping each other and amplifying these, these stories and our voices, we're going to feel a little bit more of that kickback of love and, 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 you know, kindness, you know, because I think that they're out there. It's just very difficult times for everyone. And, uh, and, and so when I, you know, I do talk to younger people and I say, listen, I know this is it. And I'm not talking about you specifically. I'm saying I'm talking to some of my other friends and I said, listen, we, we have to heal. We have to know when it's good to step in and when it's good to step back. And it doesn't, it's not just a month. Sometimes it takes two, three years at a time because each one of our roles is to step forward when we have enough energy to provide a front line and then draw back when you don't have that energy and, and let someone else step forward for you. So what we're looking for is capacity. How do we build, you know, an army of young people and old people and everyone in between that continually and consistently keep knocking on those doors. Cause I know the people are behind us. I know that humanity is not so wrong that they don't believe what we're saying here. I, I just, I can't believe that because we would have not come this far already. So I, I am excited about the future and also very worried about the mental health of people on the front lines. Um, I, you know, I was close to suicide. You know, I was drinking every day. I, I couldn't focus on anything. I, I literally was hospitalized for alcohol. And, um, and it was a moment of epiphany that I realized no one was coming to save me and the spirit world wasn't going to give me anything better than what I had right now in this moment. And I dropped all that and I quit and I focused completely on my craft. How can I tell a better story? How can I link with the right people? How can I be the best Indian that I even know how, I, I don't even know how to do that, but I'm going to do it. And, um, you know, three years later, you know, I've been a Sundance producer fellow, Concordia fellow, you know, I won the grand jury for my film Sweetheart Dancers at Outfest. You know, I'm doing an American Masters. There's never been a Native American, American Masters painter, I don't think anyway, featured in any of that stuff. So breaking ground and, and, and moving forward with films like your own, you know, Sea of Shadows is revolutionary. It entertained aggressively and has been seen by millions of people. So that's what we got to do as a crew. You know, we just have to continue to find ways to tell these stories and, and we'll, we'll all have a role to play, but we can't all do it individually. And we, you know, and we can't all do it at once. It's just, it would, it is so taxing on your soul. And I, I'd like to also say I can be reached at Bendigenous on Instagram and Twitter. I don't do Facebook. I am on Vimeo and YouTube too, as Bendigenous. And um, I'm always willing to help or, or talk or, or do whatever I need to do to continue to encourage people to, to follow our paths and what we're trying to create. And, just happy and humbled to be sitting in, in, in the space with you. Uh, with I admire all of you, know, all of you for your efforts and what we're doing. So thank you for this time. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Matt. Yeah, I, I don't really have uh, much else to say. Um, I, I, I would echo what Ben just said of like um, that. I, I, I feel really humbled and, and honored to just be a part of this conversation you know, I think, I think you're totally right, Ben. Like we need our, our goal here, you know, both 
for the Wildlands Collective, but also like speaking beyond just this organization that I help run, you know, like we need to build an army that share these ideas um, and, and, and share the sort of goals that we have for creating a, a better and more equitable world on so many levels. Um, and uh, yeah, like folks, I mean, anybody who's listening to this, like should not hesitate at all to like reach out to any of us um, because that's what we're trying to do with the Wildlands Collective was we're trying to create this community of support um, and, you know, help people find their role in this larger fight, right? And I mean, we're coming at it from a storytelling perspective. So if that's your interest, like don't hesitate to reach out. And then the other thing I'll just mention is like, I think that it would be great to hear from listeners about like the future direction that we take this show. And we are looking to choose a new name. Um, we feel like the name Eyes on Conservation is no longer representative of the overall message um, that we're trying to get across with this podcast series. And it would be super awesome to, to hear from some listeners, you know, any ideas that folks have. Uh, I mean, I, name ideas for sure, but also just any thoughts that folks have about, you know, this, this, this new direction and, and where they think we should take it. Yeah, that's excellent. I'm glad you pointed that out too. We'll we'll have links to everybody's stuff on the show notes page again. So please check that out. And yeah, I think it would be a great opportunity to hear from people about what you thought of this conversation in particular, but also about the direction that we're trying to go with it. If you'd like, you can leave a voicemail for us at 208-917-3786. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. I know Ben, Serena would love to hear from you. You guys, thanks so much for this conversation and for making time for it. And for, I know for me personally, for listening to me like fumble through trying to have a conversation where I don't always know where, where the fine print is and, and, and how to, how to say things sometimes. So um, thank you very much. Very, very much. I really enjoyed this a lot. Thank you. And I'd always like to add to all those trolls who might call or say something negative, we can record that and remix it and make you look foolish. So bring it on. I welcome the challenge. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you so so much, guys. Thank you. Thank, thanks. Thank yeah, you, thanks. Serena. Thanks, Matt. Good night, John boy. listening to the soon-to-be-renamed Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm Gregory Haddock, and I just can't thank you enough for listening to this episode and for investing yourself into this topic. It's one that deserves a lot of attention, and that's what we're going to try to do. And you being an active listener and possibly a patron on our Patreon uh, really puts us all in this movement together. It's about creating that kind of sustainable, directed movement. And we're just thrilled to be on a journey like that with you. Special thanks for this episode to Ben Alex Dupree, to Serena Simons, and Matthew Podolsky. And a big thank you to Walt Zink for today's show image. Uh, You can check out more of his stuff at Walt Zink Photography on Facebook. Take care.